Hey guys, good to see you. Today is questions you never thought you could ask in church. Here's how it works. Want to invite you to take out your cell phone now. And in a moment, we are going to splash a phone number up on this screen. And what we invite you to do is to text in any question you have on God, life, theology, the Bible, the Christian faith, the Christian tradition, fellowship of faith. I will get them anonymously. And I will do the best job I can to answer them as succinctly and, uh, and straightforwardly as I can right here on the spot. Now, I want to share with you, before we jump into that, why we do it. And here is something that comes out of our, our core value statements. We say there's a desire to be real. That we believe the church needs to be a place where people can come and see that Christians are real people. Experiencing joys, passions, and struggles. Because of this, we strive to communicate God's truth and share our experience in open and honest ways. We believe it is important as a community to be honest about our shortcomings, authentic in our lives, and sincere in what we teach. We want to be humble as a church and express our faith in a way that is genuine. I'm going to unpack that in a minute. But what that means is this. Maybe you have a question here today, one that you've been afraid to ask because you think you'll be judged by it. Maybe you're uh, here today and you have a question that you've been embarrassed to ask because you fear it will reveal something that you're struggling with, dealing with, or maybe a chink in your emotional armor that you don't want other people to see. Maybe you're here today and you simply have never known who to ask. 815-314-0363. Text your questions in to 815-3140-FOF. Whatever question you might have, the straightforward, the convoluted, the simple, the complex, the orthodox, the heretic, the sober-minded, the crazy, anything is fair game. And I'll see what I can do with it. So text your questions in. Someone did uh, not leave the iPad up here for me, so uh, I'm in trouble. Um, Where we got it, Mark? Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. All you, man, all you. (laughs) All right, thanks a lot, appreciate it. Okay, so let's go to this one right off the bat. Where are we really when we die? Who are the first to rise when Jesus comes again? And I'm glad that you're making a distinction here in this question between where you go when you die and what happens after Jesus comes again. The biggest misconception I see among Christians, and and most people for that matter, is they think that when you die, you go to heaven and you spend eternity there. That is not biblical teaching. If you are in Christ when you die, you certainly go to heaven to be with Christ, but you do not spend forever there. Because the ultimate hope that underlies the Christian religion is resurrection, not disembodied souls floating up in some spirit castle somewhere for eternity. And what the scriptures say is that when Christ comes again, the dead will rise. That doesn't mean a soul coming out of the ground. That doesn't mean some ghost floating around. It means you, dead and buried, reconstitute. You come back to life. And so the picture of eternity is actually a physical picture 
in a new heavens and new earth, as it's called. Now, who the first to rise when Jesus comes again will be, for simplicity's sake, let me just put it this way. It seems that it's a simultaneous event. That when the dead rise, it's not like Jesus has to go graveyard to graveyard going, okay, get up, get up, get up, and you're waiting like 20 years for him to make his rounds around, all right? But it does say some very cool things as well, that when Jesus comes again, those who are already dead and whose souls are with him are coming with him, they're like groupies, part of the posse who are coming in, ushering him in, and, uh, and uh, kick-starting the resurrection from there. So great question. Let me um, move on from that one. How about this? Why do people so easily discredit other religions? When the believers of those religions so passionately believe their religion is the only right one. What makes Christianity any more right than the others? Let me unpack it in phases. Why do people so easily discredit other religions? Well, a variety of reasons that often have nothing to do with their faith system, period. They're insecure. They're afraid. They don't want their beliefs shaken. They don't understand what a religion teaches fully. They've just heard sound bites or what someone said about it. And so it becomes easier just to dismiss something as a whole as opposed to critically working through what it teaches. Now, what makes Christianity any more right than the others? The comment I just made is in no way to say that all religions are equal and that all religions are equally true. The question you need to ask yourself is, do you believe there is something called reality? And do you believe that there are things that are true and not true? If you believe there's something called reality, and if you believe that there's something that is actually true, which dismisses other things as not being true, that means every belief system does not carry equal weight. Each belief system has to be evaluated in terms of reality, in terms of truth. And the Christian faith is simply taught this, like so many other religions. We believe that as we interpret reality around us, history before us, and the human condition and what we know of life in this world, we're getting it right. Not completely right, not in totality, not complete knowledge of everything, but it's simply a belief that this way seems true about how it describes God, about how it describes salvation, about how it describes the human condition. Does this dismiss truth claims in other religions? No. No, not matter-of-factly. Many other religions are, are embedded deeply in, in aspects and in, in variations of truth, but it has to be sifted carefully. To just say right, wrong is to kind of miss the boat. I'm going to leave that one at that for right now for time's sake, but if you want to follow up, um, text him again. All right, we're refreshing here. How about this? Is Christianity, the body of Christ as a whole, not the earthly construction of the church, really a religion? 
I'm going to try to sift out where this might be coming from, but it's become very fashionable to say that Christianity is about a relationship and that it's not a religion. It all comes down to your definition of terms. When you're asking me if Christianity is a religion, what do you mean by that? If your definition of religion is a belief system, well, of course it is. Of course it's a belief system. Is it only a belief system? No. But there's certainly a belief system that anchors what Christianity is. However, if your definition of religion is somehow described as humanity's attempt to get to God, that's often been rejected within the Christian faith because the Christian faith uniquely, I would argue, among other belief systems, is it's all about God coming down to us and based far less in ritual and rote forms than it is in what a relationship would entail. Now, is there room in God's kingdom for the eventual reality of fully sentient artificial intelligence? Let me repeat it. Is there room in God's kingdom for the eventual reality of fully sentient artificial intelligence? You better believe there is. There is room in God's kingdom for all kinds of things. God's kingdom is not restricted to humans only. And if you think that the new heavens and new earth will be populated with simply humans, um, just brace yourself for that surprise. All right? How about this? What is the definition of joy in Christ? And how do we have joy in Christ when we find ourselves in deep sorrow, in grief, or in despair? And uh, if I can just encourage you, you are not the only person to have wrestled with this because joy is not the same thing as happiness. Joy can exist and often does exist for people who find themselves in deep sorrow, in grief, and despair. Now, if joy in your mind is simply a definition of something like the adrenaline's pumping, you're jumping up and down, confetti cannons are going off, and you're releasing balloons, no, you're probably not doing that when you're grieving by the bedside of your dying mother. But the joy of the Lord while it can include those emotive expressions, is often something more deep and transcendent than that. It's to say that even when I am in deep sorrow, grief, and despair, I know that this is temporary. I know that this is not victorious. I know that this is not the last chapter of the story. So even though my heart breaks now, even though I'm crushed now, I'm holding on to a hope, a hope for something that will reverse what I face this day, the hope for something beautiful and amazing in the future. I love how Revelation puts it. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, a place where there's no more sickness or mourning or crying or pain, where the old order of things has passed away, where God cries out, I am making everything new, and holding on to that hope does something to you. 
I don't really know how to parse it, but it does something to you. It somehow comes into those places. Shining light in the darkness. Bringing perspective that without it often leaves you only in a place of deep sorrow, grief, or despair. All right, so like, you know, here's a classic. As God knows everything, do we really have free will? If so, how? Following logic? If God knows everything, isn't everything foreordained? Doesn't God know exactly what you're going to have for lunch today, exactly what you're going to have for dinner today, exactly who you're going to talk to at 2.38 p.m. tomorrow, exactly what thoughts go through your head six minutes after that? And if God knows all that, how does it give you free will now? My best encouragement to you on that is simply to watch The Matrix. Sometimes I fear for my family's safety in this world where so many bad things can happen. I pray for their safety, but I wonder if those prayers actually make a difference. I know God has the power to stop any bad thing he wants, but he doesn't always choose to. So I guess my question is, does prayer actually work? Or does God do what he wants regardless of the good things I pray for? And the short answer is yes. Prayer actually works. And God actually does what he wants to regardless of the good things I pray for. Can I ask, when you say, does prayer work, what do you mean by that? Is your definition of prayer that if I ask for it the right way enough times or sincerely enough that it manipulates God into my agenda, that it's unlocking some mystic formula by which I can control God? The Bible actually has a word for that. It's called witchcraft. Prayer is not spell casting. Prayer is conversation. Maybe better put crying out to a personal being that you share some kind of link or relationship with? Does asking your mom for things work? Sure it does. And you know that from your experience. But just because you ask, does that mean she automatically gives it? Think about prayer the same way. And I encourage you to even, forgive me, test God in this. Pray. Pray hard. Pray continually, as the scriptures will put it. Track your prayers. See how God answers them, because I know for one, I am quick to ask, and as soon as my answer comes, forgotten. And yet within that, there are things that God is going to allow or that God is going to do or that God has arguably foreordained that all the prayers in the world will not Eliminate. The answer is yes. Why is there not altar calls or baptism? Um, I'm assuming you mean here at Fellowship of Faith, and uh, there actually is. We do baptism a lot here at Fellowship of Faith, and we actually do altar calls 
virtually every single Sunday, you just don't realize it. See, the whole point of an altar call is to give people the opportunity to confess Jesus as their Savior and Lord, to, to repent of their sins, to throw themselves on his mercy and receive his forgiveness and enter into a relationship with him, right? Virtually every single Sunday, we stand here together and we go, most, most merciful God, we confess that we are by nature sinful and unclean. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. I'll jump to the end. But for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us. Renew us. Lead us. What do you think you're doing? What do you think you're doing if not recommitting your life to Christ? And for some, the very first time. Personally, I just don't see the need to make people come up here and do it and make a spectacle. I don't need to see the need to make people who have never done it be pointed out in front of a crowd and the 200 of you look better in your chairs and all gathered up here anyway. So that's, and, and, you know, and honestly, we don't even have an altar. So um, I guess it doesn't work at that level either. Okay, so I think this is a follow-up. Do you believe in free will? Yeah, I do. I do believe in free will. And I also believe in predestination. We're refreshing. In connection to the first question, what happens to those who have been cremated? Do you remember the first question? It revolved around death. It revolved around the destiny. Where do you go? What happens to you? Look, the Christian tradition has had this weird kind of history with cremation where it was like burying good, cremation bad, right? Think about it. A body that's buried does not stay intact, right? Dig someone up who's been in the ground for 1,500 years, and I guarantee they're not going to be looking like this, right? It seems odd for me to reason that God can reassemble the molecules that created a decomposed body, but not a body that has been burned, right? Like God's sitting here going to this one going, oh, got that, but that fire thing, man, I haven't mastered how to deal that one yet. Now, you know, the Bible, the Bible doesn't say anything, doesn't prohibit cremation in any way. And if that's your gig, um, certainly make sure you're dead first, but uh, go for it. And uh, it does not in any way remove you from the kingdom of God, from his blessing or his ability to rise you from the dead. How about here? Okay, so we know how Peter died, crucified upside down, which, uh, yes, that's church tradition anyway, that that's how he died. Kind of cool story. The reason he died that way is because they were going to crucify him the normal way. And he didn't find himself, according to the tradition, worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord. So he said, would you put me upside down in respect to Christ? Odd. James was boiled in oil. It's a rough gig. But what happens to the other apostles? Well, Judas Iscariot, we know, hung himself, if you read the gospel tradition, or threw himself off a cliff and his intestines burst out and spilled all over the place, if you read Acts. Acts chapter 1, really cool story, kept me reading the Bible when I was in middle school. But as to the rest of the apostles, you know, the Bible doesn't say. This is something that's left to some of the early church writers, the early church historians and traditions that have developed along the way. Putting Judas aside for a moment. According to church tradition, 
every single apostle except one was killed for their faith. Some in the most horrific ways, some being crucified. Andrew was crucified on an X. Hence why in Scotland they have St. Andrew's cross on their flag, which is an X. There's other apostles like Thomas who was flayed alive, um, you know, skinned, basically, and stabbed others who were sawn in half. All other kinds of gruesome ways that people concocted to torture people for the sincerity of their belief. The only one, at least according to tradition, who seemed to get off the hook was John. John, the writer of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, the book of Revelation, seemed to have died an old man, possibly in exile, arguably not, the only one, according to church tradition, so keep that tentative by natural causes. How's that for starting a movement? Oh, how about this? We are familiar with the whole, Peter, you are the rock, and on this rock, I build my church. Many Catholics feel they are the only true church. How did Peter the rock go from early Christianity to Catholicism? Do you know what this is referencing here? For those of you who are like, huh, Matthew chapter 16. Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples. And, you know, I mean, Jesus is like rock star status right now. And people are making all kinds of outlandish claims about him. Some are saying he's Jeremiah. Some are saying he's Elijah. Some are saying he's one of the other prophets. But Jesus looks at his disciples and he goes, who do you say that I am? See, not all beliefs are equal. Not all ideas are equal. Some are true. Some are not. Who do you say that I am? And Peter his name isn't even Peter yet, it's Simon. Pipes up and he goes, you're the Christ. The son of the living God. Somehow and in some way, Peter saw something of Jesus' true identity there that day. And this is what Jesus says to him. Simon, I tell you, you are Peter. He gives him a nickname, he renames him. You know what Peter means? rock. You are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Okay, that's the context. Now, within the Catholic faith, there developed this idea that there was a succession of leaders, bishops, if you will, specifically attached to the city of Rome that could trace their lineage back to Peter. Now, I don't mean per se a birth lineage, but kind of like a passing of the mantle, passing of authority kind of thing. And so Catholics, stemming easily from the 3rd century AD onward, have found primacy in the place of Rome. The bishop of Rome as being the leader among those in the Christian faith. And over the years, a lot of tradition developed, a lot of theology was done that would argue that that lineage was passed on from bishop to bishop to bishop. So only those under the care of those leaders or bishops would be true church. That's one way of interpreting it. 
Another way is simply this. That when Jesus said, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church, he simply meant you are Peter and on you and the apostolic witness that comes from you and all people to follow you, I will build my church. That it's not so much tied to a rite of laying out of hands and ritual that surrounds it, but the testimony, the word, the, the belief system, the tradition, the stream of consciousness that flows through all different kinds of varieties of people today. And that's how you end up with Peter as Catholic versus Christian in many arguments today. I don't know if that really fully explained it well enough for you, so follow up if you need a little bit more. All right, how about this? Beyond the obvious inspiration, is there a hidden me- is there a hidden message in 2 Kings 2? You put 23 to 25, but it goes better this way. 2 Kings 2, 22, right? Dave, please never lose your sense of humor. We are out of town. We got people on Facebook Live that are texting in as well, um, but following live online. I, I just got to read this to you. If you were to um, hop on the FOF webpage and look at the staff write-ups, we all have our favorite Bible passage on there. And 2 Kings 2.22 is uh, my favorite Bible passage. Let me read it. It goes like this. Now from there, Elisha went up to Bethel. As he was walking along the road, some youths came out of the town and jeered at him. Go on up, you bald head, they said. Go on up, you bald head. Such like a lame insult, isn't it? <laughs> he turned around, looked at them, and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the youths. <laughs> and he went on to Mount Carmel from there and returned to Samaria. <laughs> Best stinking passage in the Bible, is it not? Best passage in the Bible. How about this? What does the Bible say about domestic violence? I ask because I look through the Bible, um, through the Bible, some of the verses were a little hard to understand or seem not to talk about. I think what this is getting at is what does the Bible say about domestic violence and that at times the Bible seems maybe to be silent on it and at other times the Bible might even seem to um, promote it? Is, is that maybe a, a fair way of interpreting the question that came in? Well, keep in mind that the Bible does not say anything specifically with the term domestic violence because that term is modern jargon. That term is something that was devised arguably in the last century. Um, but the Bible has plenty to say about violence. The Bible does not seem to care if violence is restricted to domestic situations only. It cares about violence more broadly than that. There's really, when you read the Old Testament prophets, and I think this will surprise you, because I bet in your mind you think of the Old Testament as the violent book. It's surprising when you read the Old Testament prophets that the judgment of God is often pronounced on really only one of two, uh, two different sin packages that exist among the people of Israel. The first is idolatry. Chasing after other gods, running after other gods, but the other is this, violence. What we would call social justice issues, 
Violence to neighbor, oppressing people, downtrodding the poor, treating other people cruelly, be it in war, be it in family, be it in community, be it interpersonally. The God of the Bible has a lot of very, very harsh things to say about those who live or propagate violence. You can think of what Jesus says on the flip side. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God, right? Those who live by the sword will die by the sword, Jesus says. Read Amos, maybe just to get yourself started, and see what God has to say about violence there. Can I suggest, instead of looking for the term domestic violence, use other words that describe what violence is, not only the word violence, but descriptions, pictures, images of how violence is often done and let the Bible use its language to fill that out. But no, it's not going to talk about it all the time because the Bible isn't just a book about violence. It's about a whole lot of things and has a lot to say on other topics, so maybe you're just not reading in the right place. Secondly, there's a lot of times when the Bible talks about violence. In fact, the people of God using violence, living by violence. And I just want to kind of challenge you on what I suspect may be a false assumption that you're going into your Bible reading with. The stories in this book are not primarily meant to be virtuous models of how to live. It is a book of history. It is a book of stories. It is a book that recounts not only the good, but also the bad and the ugly that not just the enemies of God do, but the people of God do without trying to whitewash it, without trying to minimize it, without trying to make excuse for it, painting a picture of the human condition through and through. So just because you read about the violence that's conducted in the book of Judges or the way that um, the people in the book of Judges cut up a concubine and sent her 12 pieces to the 12 tribes of Israel to kind of rally them to war, don't mistake that for, for authorization or approval by God. That was never the spirit of and not how the Bible's meant to be read. Great question. All right, how about this? What are the gifts of the Holy Spirit? If you have the Spirit, will you have a gift of the Holy Spirit? Will some have no gift at all? God obviously at some level gives his gifts to all people, whether you're a Christian or not. The fact that you can breathe, the fact that you can walk, the fact that your body functions, that you have family, that the sun makes your grass grow as well, even if you hate God, is nothing short of gift from him. But the Bible does say that those who are in Christ and receive the Holy Spirit get along with that special gifts, new gifts, unique gifts that God blesses them with in that arena. And there's really no limit to this list. You could read passages like 1 Corinthians 12. You could read passages like Romans 12. And it lists it in other places as a way where it gives sample ideas but they're really meant to be that samples, not an exclusive list of gifts. You know, it's funny. There's some of the gifts that uh, I find people don't want even at all. Celibacy. 
is called a gift of the Spirit. Sign me up for that one, right? The gift no high school boy has ever wanted. Just a way of saying that gifts are brought in marriage is called a gift as well. You know, don't worry so much about trying to identify or label your gift. Do this instead. See what you're good at. See what bears fruit. You understand the metaphor there, the cliche? That when you engage in this, that it makes a difference in God's kingdom, in other people's lives. It brings hope or healing or things of that nature. See what lights you up and pursue those things. And rather than trying to label, was this the gift of mercy or the gift of compassion? Who cares? Just do the things that God is calling you to and let him work mightily through you in the process. All right. In recent months, certain individuals have given sermons at Fellowship of Faith, uh, referring not to me but others. The content was intriguing, but they lacked a fundamental purpose to convey law and gospel. If we are part of the LCMS, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, how can you assure the congregation that this fundamental principle is practiced? You know, good question, and I can talk about it all day and night, but talk is cheap. See if law and gospel is practiced. Evaluate it. Not every single line that's spoken, but in general trends. Over your time here, I'm assuming you're not new because you wouldn't ask a question about the LCMS if you were. Look at the life of the congregation. Is law and gospel a central part to our life, our practice, and our mode of ministry? See, the mistake so many people, I think, make in the LCMS is they reduce law and gospel to a 20-minute experience that is segregated to a pulpit time on Sunday. That's so cheap. Law and gospel is meant to permeate your being and your soul and to be a movement and stream that you live in in the course of life that doesn't have to find equal playing time in every 20, or in my case, 40 minute experience that you come across every given Sunday. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, well, follow up. All right. Um, let's see. I, I don't know where to start. Um, let's go here. Not looking for a political debate. Rock on. But how can we as Christians reconcile some of the decisions slash executive orders being made by our president that promote or support, be it injustice, racism, prejudice, and or intolerance? How can we as Christians, here's the word, reconcile? I've got to ask you what you mean. What does it mean to reconcile? Because when the Bible talks about reconciliation, what it refers to is two people who are on the outs with each other, to people or groups who have had something fissure them or come between them. And of course, reconciliation is coming back together and healing those fissures so there's a sense of oneness again. Well, how does that happen? The most basic way that it happens that no one wants to do is simply this. 
and humility approaching the person that you stand in an irreconcilable state with and humbly going and working it out. Talking it out. Figuring it out. And being motivated by a love for that person, even if you hate their guts. To do the hard work even if you disagree. Because reconciliation doesn't mean agreeing on everything. But reconciliation isn't also something that you can guarantee will happen. You are commanded to forgive. You can forgive even if someone is not repentant. But reconciliation takes two. And the sad, broken reality of this world is that there are many people who don't want to reconcile, who don't care enough to put in the time. And it hangs out there, and that might be the reality with this. Now, if by reconciliation you're looking at this as, how do I internally come to peace with it? I'm not sure you can. I'm not sure you're supposed to. Feeling at peace about everything that happens in this world, regardless of whose decision it might be, is not what you're called to, even though it feels really good. Let me, for time's sake, do one more today. How can we, as a church, get better at lamenting honestly? The hard thing about Sunday morning worship is it tends to be an energized affair. You know, you come in, and I don't care what your style is, if it's our style or other styles, you come in, it's big music, exciting driving beats, right? The joy of the Lord is our strength. And sadly, I'm with you. In the Christian church today, we have forgotten the lost art of lamenting. When's the last time you've seen a worship song, hymn or modern, that has been about brokenness and bleeding out your heart and crying out to God in pain? Wouldn't it be great to do that for like 10 weeks? We're just going to come and lament? I guess the answer to your question is, I don't know. But that I don't know isn't going to stop me from trying to figure out how to do it better because I can tell you this. It's something that we've talked about in staff. It's something that's being talked about in, in Christian circles across the country and across the globe. How do we live that more genuine, holistic expression of the human condition that isn't saccharine fest alone. And I have to land the questions. So maybe you're here today and you asked one that I didn't get to. Good news, we pick this up next week. And the way that I start next Sunday is I lead off with the questions that we didn't get to yet today with open text and lined up. So I want to encourage you, if you didn't get your, your, your question answered yet, come next Sunday. 